This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Pastor Will Chester. Well, good morning. My name is Will Chester, and I'm the youth pastor here at Church of the Resurrection. It is good to be with you. Do you ever have a a moment in your life where you feel like you're living in a sitcom? Like the, the, the bizarreness, the absurdity of your circumstances are just so ridiculous that you wish you could capture it and sell it to a producer because it would make for great television. Well, the passage we read this morning, it actually is this kind of situation. If you're joining us for the first time this summer, we are preaching through uh, the book of Jeremiah, which is about a prophet who lived in about 600 BC, uh, 600 years before the birth of Jesus. And when our passage opens, In chapter 32, Jeremiah is not having a good day. Jeremiah is stuck in prison for having the audacity to speak the truth about why his city is coming under judgment. And his city is not having a good day. They're they're under siege. The Babylonians have already come through, ransacked the city. They've, They've taken the best and brightest off into exile. And now they're camped out, waiting for the Israelites to give up sitting right outside the city walls. It's just a bad time. And into this bad time comes Cousin Hannibal. Cousin Hannibal is, uh, he's, he's not quite aware of what's happening. He's not quite aware of his cousin Jeremiah and his plight because Cousin Hannibal comes not with empathy or understanding, but Cousin Hannibal comes with a business idea. I mean, do you have anybody like this in your life who, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are, they're always thinking two steps ahead. How could, how could I turn this for a prophet? So Cousin Hannibal comes to Jeremiah and he says, Jeremiah, buddy, pal, hey, you don't look so good, but listen, you wanna make a little money? A little passive income, you know? You don't have to do a thing. You just sit there, you'll make money. It's great, this is a deal that you don't wanna miss. And Jeremiah, you know, maybe he'd normally try to explain like, look, it's just not a good time. I mean, our city's under siege. We're being routed by the Babylonians. Whatever I buy is gonna belong to them. I really don't see what you have to gain in this situation. But Jeremiah doesn't say that. In fact, Jeremiah says, okay, Hannibal, I'll buy the field from you. It's a terrible idea. It's a terrible time to be investing anywhere in Judah. All right, this is like, This is like if somebody came to you and they said, listen, the pandemic is a great time to buy a timeshare in Florida. All right, people people are gonna be flocking there. But Jeremiah, he buys the field, why? Because God told him to. Because buying this field is gonna be a sign for Jeremiah and everybody else that the siege does not have the final word, that God will restore, that there's reason for hope. And if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you might think that that we're really stuck on this theme of hope. You might even get the impression that Jeremiah is a hopeful kind of guy, but he's not. I mean, the the book of Jeremiah is is dreary. It's filled with with judgment. Jeremiah himself is kind of a depressed dude. But right here in the middle of the book, chapters 29 to 33, it's called the book of consolation. It's the worst, the worst time in Israel's history. And it's here that God speaks a message of hope to Jeremiah and to his people to say, I'm not done with you. This isn't the end. 
And so this morning, I want to talk about this theme, the nature of hope. What is the nature of hope? What are, and then what are the grounds of hope? And finally, what is the fruit of hope? So let's begin, and I'd encourage you to, to have your Bibles open to chapter 32. So what do we learn about the nature of hope from Jeremiah's purchase of the field? The first thing that we learn is that hope is not merely a positive feeling or sentiment. It's not just a feeling we have inside. It's not just an idea that we have about the future, but that hope, true hope, is embodied in our actions. Notice the care that Jeremiah takes to record all of these embodied things. And I bought the field at Anatoth, verse 9 from Hannibal, my cousin. I weighed out the money. I signed the deed. I got witnesses. I even arranged for the deed to be placed in a weatherproof container. He goes to these great lengths to describe just how intentional, just how visible his hope was. Hope is a conviction that's embodied in what we do. And that's why Peter in the New Testament, 600 years later, that's why Peter can say this to his hearers who are in their own difficult time. He can say, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have. Peter's assumption is that hope is embodied. It's visible to others through what we do. It's not just a feeling. It's not just a thought. It comes out in our actions. It's noticed. Secondly, we see that hope is costly. So Jeremiah, the text says that he purchased the field for 17 shekels of silver. So there's no reason to think that that's an exorbitant price. That's probably the going rate for a field like this. But what makes it costly are the circumstances. Jeremiah knew without a doubt that this field was, was going into the hands of the Babylonians. It was a waste of money. Hope is always costly. So thinking of examples in our own lives, if you're generous with your money towards the kingdom of God, that's a costly decision. It's going to cost you a better house. It's going to cost you better vacations. It's going to cost you better experiences. It's going to cost you a better car. You do it because what your hope is in is in the future. It's in the kingdom of God coming to earth. If you choose to forgive someone who's wronged you, that's a costly decision because you're giving up what you feel is your right for vindication because your hope is in God who will judge all of the earth in his own time. If you, as an unmarried or celibate person, if you are confident that one day God will give you a name and a legacy that is better than sons and daughters, as Isaiah prophesies. If you believe that, it will cost you the approval and the understanding of people around you who have their hopes set in romantic fulfillment. If you do any of these things, you'll stand out because it's costly to do them. Hope is costly, and for all these reasons and more, hope appears foolish. Jeremiah will not live to see a return on his investment. That's not why he's doing this. Jeremiah's children will not see a return on his investment. He doesn't have any children. That's not why he's doing this. He bought the field as foolish as it appeared as a sign of hope in God's promises to his people. 
embodied, costly, foolish. That is what hope looks like. Things like sacrifice, humility, forgiveness, holiness. These are all long-term investments. They don't always pay off right away. They almost never bring you any kind of notoriety or fame. They don't always make sense right away, but they will someday. That is our hope. Hope is a long-term investment. And if you live a life like this, if you live a life of hope like this, you will stand out. You will be different. You will be noticed by others. Pope John Paul II, he called it being a sign of contradiction. As the waves of culture are moving one way, you'll stand facing a different way. And if you find yourself in that position, take heart. Because that's the gospel at root in you. That's the good news of Jesus taking root in your life because your hope is not set on this world or in this time, but your hope is set on the future. You will be different and praise God for that because we need people like that in our world. We'll come back to that point. What are the grounds of our hope? See, even Jeremiah struggled to understand that. Jeremiah was willing to be obedient to God, but verses 16 to 25, this is an extended prayer where basically Jeremiah does this really bold thing for Jesus out in public. Yeah, God, I'm taking a stand with you. And then he goes back to pray and says, wait, did I just do what you wanted me to do? Because that, that's kind of crazy, buying this field. That's what he's saying in verses 16 to 25. Praise this long prayer. And, uh, and it starts basically like this. He kind of recounts who God is, what he knows about him. He says, God, here's what I know about you. You're the creator of the universe. Nothing is too hard for you. I get that. He says, you're a God of grace. You rescued my people from slavery. I understand that. I understand you did that, not because we deserved it, but simply because it's in your character, it's in your nature to do that. He says, but I also know this, you're a God of justice. You care about how we treat others. You care about how we interact and worship you. You told us exactly what to do, and we blew it. All of that leads up to verse 24. This is, he finally gets to kind of the heart of his confusion. He says, behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it. Those are the ramps and the ladders, of the Babylonians to ascend the walls. He said, God, you, everything you spoke of, everything you told us would happen if we disobeyed, all of that has come to pass. You see it. And yet, and yet you, O Lord, have said to me, buy the field and get witnesses though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. That's another name for the Babylonians. Can you hear the confusion here? See, Jeremiah's got two ideas that he can't quite square. On the one hand, he has this, this promise of restoration. He buys the field, hearing God say, fields shall be bought again. I want you to be an early investor, Jeremiah. So he's got that on the one hand, restoration. But then on the other hand, he knows that God is a God of justice. He knows that God has, has laid out his expectations in the law. 
And God can't simply turn aside from evil. He can't just turn aside from wrongdoing. Somehow he's got to deal with that. How do justice and mercy coexist? How does restoration come if God is truly like this? If he truly repays evil for what it deserves? And we can relate to that in this time because our, our, our country's asking the same thing. How can, how can our land be characterized by justice and mercy? How can we authentically deal with our legacy of racism or mistreatment of native peoples? How can we authentically deal with this in a just way that also leads to restoration? And there's, there's lots of social media posts, there's lots of statements, but nobody's cr- quite clear on the pathway forward. How do these two coexist? How do we do this? Is change really going to happen? And if you ask that question to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, do you see any hope for change right now in your situation? Jeremiah would say, no. Jeremiah would say, we've been through this before. We've fallen into sin, God's rescued us. We've fallen into sin, God's rescued us. There's nothing different about his current generation that gives him reason for hope. The city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. This should be the end of the story. He can't comprehend a situation where judgment doesn't get the final word. And then God responds. Here's what he says, verse 26. God basically mirrors Jeremiah's prayer. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. I am the creator. You're right, Jeremiah. Is anything too hard for me? He goes on, Jeremiah, you're also right about this. I am a God of justice, and I am using Babylon to judge my people. But then verse 36. But about this city, Jerusalem, of which you say it's given into the hand of Babylon, here's what I tell you. I'm going to bring my people back. I'll make them live in safety, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. These are comforting words. They show up throughout the Old and New Testaments. They're the language of covenant, of the union between God and his people. They may have broken their promises, but God won't break his. The relationship isn't over. And so Jeremiah would be right to wonder, well, how is this going to be? How how are we not going to end up in the same situation again? And God goes on to explain this concept called the new covenant, which he told Jeremiah about in chapter 31. The new covenant is your reason for hope, Jeremiah. What is the new covenant? The new covenant is is several things. It encompasses several things that all happen at, at different times in history. But Jeremiah sees them as one picture. And so some of them are going to happen soon. But he says part of the new covenant is that the people are going to return to their land. And that's going to happen 70 years later. The new covenant isn't going to cancel out the old covenant. It's not going to set aside the demands of the Mosaic law. The difference now is that God's going to do something in the hearts of his people that will enable them to obey. Verse 39, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. 
their hearts are going to be transformed. In verse 40, he says that this covenant will be everlasting, an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. It'll be final. Grace and mercy will have the final word. He says earlier in chapter 31, it's going to involve the forgiveness of sins, and all of this will happen because of God's initiative. It's something that God alone will do on behalf of his people. It's something that God alone only can do. Verses 41 and 42, I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land of faithfulness with all my heart and my soul. God takes it upon himself. For just as I have brought this great disaster, just as I brought judgment, so I will bring upon them all of the good that I promised them. Fields shall be bought in this land which you call a desolation. That is your reason for hope, because I'm going to do something that will make the difference. How does God do all of that? Jeremiah doesn't get any more of the picture. That's as much as he receives. But you and I, we know the details. We know what happened, that God brings about this new covenant by sending his son, Jesus. And it's very difficult to describe this work of Jesus without getting into kind of theological, religious sounding language. But that makes sense because Jesus is the savior of the world, but he does that by being the savior first of his own Jewish people. So Jesus comes and he perfectly fulfills the law of the old covenant on our behalf. He fulfills the law in a way that we have been unable to do. And so because of that, he's able to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin and extend forgiveness to all who receive it by faith. He is the one who reigns for everlasting as the king promised to David. And then God sends his spirit to transform our hearts, to give us new hearts so that day by day we could be transformed into his image. Hallelujah. Don't you long for that? When you fall into a familiar pattern of sin, don't you long for a new heart? When vicious words come out of your mouth towards a person that you love, don't you long for healing and a new heart? Well, that's what you're given. That's what Jesus gives you. That's what the Holy Spirit gives you. Even now, even today, as you confess your sins and as you receive the strengthening of Christ's body and blood, hallelujah. Hallelujah. This is the ground of our hope. Nothing else. And so we see that it is entirely appropriate for Jeremiah to buy a field to do something that is embodied and costly and foolish. Because God himself did something that is embodied and costly and foolish. Jesus didn't buy a field. He didn't buy a stake in the land, but he bought a stake in humanity. I mean, consider this. Jesus is eternally human. He's not always been this way. Jesus has always been God. There has never been a time where Jesus is not God, but Jesus became human. He bought a stake in humanity, and he will always be human. He never intends 
to sell his stake in humanity. He never intends to move past humanity. He never intends to to drop his human nature forever. He has joined himself to us. Jesus bought a field. Everlasting, permanently, eternally. The incarnation was a long-term investment in humanity, in you and in me. Praise the Lord. And so if that's our hope, if Jesus has joined himself to us permanently, if Jesus has brought about this new covenant, what does that mean for our lives today? Do we just sit back and and wait for good news to come? No. No, we have all the more reason to embody hope with costly decisions that might not make sense to the outside observer. What is the fruit of hope? Here are three suggestions. The fruit of hope is actually the ability to look at sin square in the face and not be overcome. The fruit of hope is that that we don't have to look past evil. We don't have to cover over it with hopeful words, but we we can recognize it for what it is. This was what Jeremiah did. Jeremiah was so clear about the evil and injustice of his people that he was accused of being pro-Babylonian. People accused him, you're gonna desert us. You're gonna go off and be on the other side. Jeremiah says it couldn't be further from the truth. It's my hope, it's my zeal for the Lord. It's my assurance that God is making all things new that gives him the ability to look at evil and to name it. And so as people of hope, we're not afraid to name our own sin. As people of hope, we're not afraid to enable or to to face corporate sin, maybe something we've participated in unthinkingly. We can look at the worst parts of ourselves, at the worst parts of our society, and not be defensive because we have hope, because we know that judgment doesn't get the final word, because we know that God is bringing about restoration. And so we welcome the opportunity to confess sin. We welcome the opportunity to receive a new heart, knowing with confidence that God brings restoration. We're not afraid of judgment. Secondly, the fruit of hope is a willingness to be different. I talked about this earlier, this being a sign of contradiction, being someone who just doesn't fit in this life. Jeremiah bought a field in the midst of a siege. That's a sign of contradiction. For you, choosing to live a life of godliness and discipline and sacrifice in a world that says, no, no, you have the right to be happy. Choosing those things is a sign of contradiction. It will set you on a path that is different than those around you. Standing up for the dignity of all human life, whether the immigrant or the unborn, whether those you think are deserving or undeserving, whether black, brown, white, everything in between, standing up for the dignity of all life, that will make you different. Because our our world, our political ideas right now will tell you, pick and choose. Show us what side you're on by who you stand with. And we again and again, as people of hope, will say, I stand with Jesus. I stand for the dignity of all human life. I don't take sides because my hope is not in my political party gaining a platform. 
My hope is in the restoration that only Jesus can bring. I'm unafraid of being different. I'm not partisan. I am with Jesus. Let's be people of hope. Let's be people who stand out, who are a sign of contradiction, where others would look at us and say, tell me more about this. Tell me more about what you have your eyes set on because I don't recognize it anywhere else. Lastly, the fruit of hope is that others might see and believe. Jeremiah put the deed to this field in an earthen vessel so that future generations could see what hope looked like, hope that was born in the midst of tragedy. My wife and I have been thinking about this this week. Um, yesterday we watched on, on Zoom as her, her grandmother's funeral. Grandmother passed away this week. My wife calls her Mamaya. Mamaya lived a hard life. She suffered. She was not naive about evil. And yet she wasn't bitter. She had every reason to be bitter with this world, but she wasn't. She lived a life that was characterized by hope. She was born in Romania in a small village. She watched communism take over in her country. Her family as Baptist Christians experienced persecution in their country. She raised 12 children, not knowing if they would have enough to eat. In the early 90s, she immigrated to the United States, worked in a factory in Chicago. She helped raise 27 grandchildren here. Life was not easy for Mamaya, but she had hope. She had hope in Jesus. She did not have much. You will probably never hear about her again. There will be no books written about her, but she invested everything she had in Jesus. And she left a legacy for her children, for her grandchildren, for her great-grandchildren. And in seasons of persecution and in seasons of doubt where her, her children and grandchildren were tempted to walk away from Jesus, here's what they'd think. If I walked away from Jesus, if I stopped looking at him, I would have to face Mamaya. I would have to go to her and say, I don't believe. And how could I do that? when she's given everything for him. See, when you live a life of hope, when your eyes are so fixed on the restoration that is to come and can only come through Jesus, then when people look at you, they'll have to look at what you're looking at. And I bet if you're sitting here listening to this story today that you have people in your life like this, people who have embodied hope in such a way that you cannot deny what they experienced. There's something compelling there that strengthens your faith, that strengthens your hope. That's what a life of hope does. That's what the lives of the saints do for us in the church. They model a life that's well-lived, that strengthens us to do the same, to look at Jesus just as they looked at Jesus. Your legacy of hope can strengthen others. Hope is embodied, it's costly, it's foolish, and for all of those reasons, it points to the only hope that any of us have, Jesus Christ. That God has done something new in him, unrepeatable, it doesn't need to be repeated. 
that will transform our world once and for all. In fact, that is transforming our world. And so resurrection, in this time of difficulty, may your life be a sign to others of your great hope. May your hope be visible in such a way that others would ask you about it. And may you invest in the kingdom, knowing that every foolish sacrifice you make now will be shown wise in the day of our Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.